1: Did you know there is a huge volcano in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and that all around the base of the island these insane wines are farmed? And by insane, I mean some of the most pleasantly distinct wines I've ever tasted from the most extreme vineyards I've ever seen. And mind you, I'm someone who has actually slipped down the slates of the Garden. I've seen lightning from the Rapsani vineyards on Mount Olympus. I just missed a mudslide on the way to a vineyard in Santa Cruz. In Central Otago, I got sick on that hairpin turn on the Crown Range. I've been stung and bitten and cut by just about everything you can in a vineyard, and I've had to avoid the occasional bear, large cat, and snake. But the vineyards on this volcano set a new level of vineyard extreme that was difficult for me to process. The island, Pico Island, was once world famous for dry white wines and a passamento style wines called Pasado. There was a big wine heyday about 180 years ago and before. Then all of these wild things happened, and the unique vineyards of Pico went mostly offline for over a century Most of these historic vineyards have been sleeping until today, when we find Pico about a decade into a wine renaissance. And the whole story about this island is so fascinating, it's almost impossible to believe. From the multiple whale species that make the surrounding waters their playground, to the vines that pretty much grow in salt water, you'll find small pyramids all around the island, ancient ruins that wind through the jungle, and a history that takes us from the courts of Russian Tsars to Australia. Also, the more recent volcanic eruptions there have launched a rich culinary tradition about soup. Yes, soup. All of this is a part of Pico's story. So come along with me. We're off to the middle of the Atlantic, just next to the Gulf Stream. Here, three tectonic plates meet, and this is where you'll find the Azores Island Group. These islands spring up from weak points in the Earth's crust. The older Azores have weathered down to these verdant hills and calderas, and the vegetation is left behind these pockets of soil, where a multitude of crops can grow. But the newest island in the group, Pico Island, named for the huge volcanic peak that towers over the small group of central islands, has a scant amount of vegetation because the lava is so fresh. It's got these vast slabs of black hardened lava, layered and draped in thick dark sheets around the base of the island. A travel writer in 1889 wrote, there's not a single atom of substance deserving the name of soil on Pico. So how did this young volcano become the nucleus of one of Portugal's most interesting wine regions? To really understand the wine here, we'll need to go back to the beginning. It's generally accepted that the first Portuguese settlers arrived around 1427. And there's a mysterious vineyard site here called Priasão Vela, which means ancient creation. And let me just say, walking in this vineyard, it took my absolute breath away. I've never seen anything remotely like this place in my life. So imagine a flat floor of dark black lava with a three-foot-high maze wall made of loosely packed lava rocks. The maze wall covers most of the floor. The maze seems endless and labyrinthian, but it's laid out in organized rectangles with higher walls denoting past property markers. A single vine sits in each room-like compartment, and there are little breaks in the inner wall network so you can walk from one vine to the next. You have to be very careful not to step on the canes or the shoots. They're like spokes of a wheel. They sprawl out from the cordon head, which is trained just a few inches from the surface of the ground. These walls protect the vines from the wind. There's no masonry on the walls. They're just jagged volcanic stones piled upon one another. And the stones are so sharp that when you stack them, they almost stick together as the jagged teeth of the stone bites into the holes in the other volcanic stones beneath it. So the wall's porous, It allows wind through to get some airflow, but it also protects the vines from the intense winds that can come off the ocean. If we take a survey of travel writing through the centuries, it's put many writers to the impossible task of describing these mysterious vineyards of Pico. In 1841, travel writer Joseph Boulard wrote, Wherever you cast your eye, hardly any other objects than stones meet it. If Pico had been the original heap of cinders that must have accumulated around Vulcan's furnace, it could scarcely be more blank and barren than are the stones in which the vines are planted. In 1843, the Massachusetts paper Newbury Port Herald reported, The vineyards which cover this part of the island are cut up into little compartments by low walls of lava, and in the place of soil, there's little or nothing visible to the eye, but the same broken fragments of volcanic cinders and lava. And the Philadelphia Inquirer reported in 1867, the base of the mountain appears to be covered with a coarse black network, which might easily be mistaken for trellis work. But as you approach shore, the objects become more visible and this trellis work is seen to consist of low stone walls of black lava, dividing the vineyards into small compartments, the meshes of the network which appeared to overspread the mountain. And the juiciest description by far is from Edgar Wakeman, who wrote in 1889 in the Pittsburgh Dispatch, Pico Island looks like a black dunce's cap covered in gray lace. All of these descriptions are from travelers who first approached the island by boat from the neighboring island of Fayal, And they landed in Madalena, the nearest port, right near the ancient creation vineyard. Their first view of Pico Island being the mysterious Creosalvela site. And its surrounding vineyards it's no accident that the vineyards are just a few steps from the black cliff-like coastline that's relentlessly pounded with waves and wind it's on the coastline where you find the lowest rainfall and the warmest temperatures it's the perfect place for grapes to ripen on this island the coastline is also raw it is the worst place to have livestock or to plant crops like cereals and vegetables there's some decent soil higher up the volcano and that's where you find the famous cattle of pico and some vegetable production. Some of the only plants that can even think about growing in the harsh environment of Pico's coast are grapevines and fig trees. I recorded first stepping onto Salvela. Approaching this vineyard kind of stirs your soul in the same way that you might feel soulful as you approach Stonehenge or the pyramids at Chichen Itza. And you can get a sense of the powerful landscape just by listening. So we're out here right on the edge of the vineyard, and you can really hear the wind, how it's picked up. Um, It's almost howling across the vineyards at times, and the ocean is breaking in the background. It's really a stunning landscape. Legally, Creosal is a municipality that encompasses the ancient vineyard at the coastline, and it goes all the way up to the caldera of the volcano, carving out a slice of the island, just like a slice of pie. But when most wine people say Salvela, they're referring to the ancient vineyard site near the coast. And as we start visiting with winemakers on Pico, there's another word you'll need to know. Legido. The black lava slabs that pour over the coastlines and several parts of the island are locally called Legido, which means slab in Portuguese. And the various Legidos are usually referenced by their nearest town or landmark, so there's Legido Santa Lucia, or the black lava slab right near Santa Lucia town. There's the Legido do Criasalvela, or the black lava slab where you find the ancient vineyard. Legido this, Legido that, and so forth. Each Legido references a particular lava flow. And because of this, each Legido has a different age, and each Legido has slightly different characteristics. It's a similar concept to the contradas that you'll find on Mount Etna. So when people say Criasalvela, they're usually referring to the Legito do Criacel where the vineyards are. Now you might be wondering, why is Erin talking about these Legitos so much? It's because, dear listener, I'm trying to help you avoid the mistake that I made. Pro tip, when you're on Pico, people don't always specify which legido you're at or you might be going to. Legito is essentially a soil type, and places with Legito soil tend to have Legito in the name, And for some reason with this particular word, I was very slow on the uptake, and I just did not get the concept until much later. We'd be at one place and someone would be like, this is Legito. Then we'd go to another Legito, and I'd be like, wait a minute, weren't we just at Legito? I figured it out after a while, but I want you to be set up for success. So now you know. ancient creation vineyard walls go back to at least the 1690s, but nobody knows how old they really are. Think about it. Archaeologists usually find clues in the soil, but on lava rocks, there's no archaeological record, no trash pits to uncover, no samples left behind in the mud. It's a blank slate, a blank legido. So it's really very mysterious to be there wondering just how old this labyrinth could be. And just for fun, here's a very speculative hypothetical. Let's probe even farther back in time. A recent discovery from core samples taken from Pico Island's Lake Paschino suggests that Norse settlers may have had livestock here around the year 800. Archaeologists have also just dated a Norse site in Newfoundland, Canada, to 1021. So there's some evidence of Norse travelers to and fro across the North Atlantic from around 800 to 1021, at least. And this is an ultra-speculative thought— but it does kind of make you ask the question, just how old are some of these wall structures? But we'll play it safer today and say the 1690s, or before. There are three main white grape varieties that you'll find on Pico Island. Arinto from the Azores, Verdello, and Tarantejo do Pico. If you've had Arinto before, this is not that Arinto. This is a special kind of Arinto from the Azores with a different genealogy called Arinto dos Azores, or Arinto of the Azores. Acid heads and Riesling lovers, you'll love Arinto. Imagine if a Grossescavaix Nahe Riesling had a baby with the best Santorini Assyrtiko you ever had. Arinto dos Azores is packed with tight, nervous, animated power, and it rushes in with this sort of green apple, lip-smacking, tart, zesty brightness, and it seizes you and grabs you in a way that is so intense that you almost wonder, did you drink the wine? Or did the wine drink you? It's trippy, like reading Julio Cortazar's famous Ashalote story, where he observes the salamander in the aquarium, but by the end of the story, they've switched souls, and he is a salamander looking out of the aquarium at himself. That's what drinking good Arento is like. It's like a complete mind-bump. Tarantese do Pico is completely different. If you've had Tarantese before, this is not that Tarantese. This is a special kind of Tarantese that you only find on Pico called Tarantese do Pico. It's like a mandarin orange saline laser beam. And in the glass, it's this yellow topaz. But in an extended harvest year, it kind of almost glows with this deep internal fire like polished ancient amber. It's something precious to be admired. And you enjoy Tarantese do Pico? You sense you're lucky to have a sip Yet it's such a singularity that you kind of observe its glory from the outside. It, it doesn't come at you directly like Arinto or Verdello. It sort of keeps a graceful distance and demands your respect. And then there's Verdello. If you've ever had Verdeo, this is different. It's Verdello. And you really only find it in the Atlantic Islands. What does it taste like? Well, the good ones taste like if awesome Savonier and Grand Chablis had a love child. The great ones are slick, with this silky texture, and there's a stealth acidity that kind of sneaks up, and mysterious aromas almost hypnotize you like steam from hot stones. Almond cake, financier cookies, salty seashells, and they hit like waves, just endlessly for weeks in your memory. It's a wine that washes over you, just lapping at your soul, until it almost laminates itself to your very being, and you can't get it out of your head. Most of the 11 producers on Pico work primarily with these three grapes. And you'll also find other grapes too, like Fresnel Pirege. But the Azores Orinto, the Brardello, and the Pico Tarantège are the trinity of this particular volcano's pantheon. Now, I just mentioned that there are 11 producers, but that's not entirely accurate because pretty much every person who lives on Pico makes wine. Every household and family owns, or their family owns, grapevines, and every family has an adaga or a small house near their vines where they press the wine and store their family barrels. So there are really thousands of winemakers on Pico, but about 11 that make wine commercially. Wine growing and winemaking is intertwined with everybody's life on the island. On Pico, a lot of the residential areas are up higher on the volcano, but the wine is made close to the sea, where it grows best. During harvest time, families will move down the volcano from their homes, and they'll sort of camp out in their adagas. It's almost like glamping, because they all come for several weeks to do the harvest, and they live out of their adagas. On some parts of the island, this annual pilgrimage is called the muda, and it sort of means the moving. For a lot of people, the time of the muda is a time of really special family memories.
2: In the summer, they don't have school. They can go here with the father and the, and the, the whole family comes to these houses.
3: And when they move, they would bring the, the, the chicken yes, the the, the, pigs. Po- the pigs, all the animals. And they would bring, well, of course... This is not the same in every village, because you have places that the coast is nearer, the, the main population, the main village. But in places where, where it's a bit more far away, that is not practical for you to walk every day just to feed the chickens or to feed the cats. So They would move with all the animals, yeah. the domestic animals together. So nearby the, the, the adega, they used to have little structures to have the pig, to have the
1: chicken, but just temporary. <laughs> and then when the harvest is over, then you get the bad weather, then you gotta move back yes, up the mountain. Yes, to go to the village again. Yes. When people do the muda, they like to go glamping. It's yes. like fun, yeah. exciting. Yeah. Yes.
3: And people used to have like, they start like having small communities here. If, if we go around this small Postel area. you see that there is a small chapel and then they have a, a party with festivity like a festival in this time of the harvesting time so to here in the end of the muda it's like
4: now fun. we must go home again let's go do make a party
1: with everybody when did we do the muda does it like, do you come and does every family have their place they know where they're supposed to go? It's yes. not like there's no... No,
2: no, everybody has their house. Yeah. And,
1: and so you do the muda and it's sort of like you visit the friends of the muda might be different than the friends of the... Exactly. Of, the of course, of, the of, course of course, of
3: course. It's like, no, like you have a vacation it's, area it's, in, the, in your own
1: island.
2: Yeah, <laughs> but it's not the not, not, uh, same. It's um, certainly you have an,
1: uh, different neighbours, yes. It's like Montauk or um, Nantucket. It's all these places. It's the same thing in New England. That was Vanda Supa, the director of environment and climate change of Pico, and Monica Silva-Goulart, she's an architectural expert of the Pico Island vineyards. And you'll hear some stories from them throughout today's episode. Let's head over to Insula, where Paolo Machado is making some insane wines. Paolo's wines rush you like a brick wall. BAM! They are pure power, taut and brilliant, and there's so much energy boiling under the surface that it's tightly coiled and wound up, and when you take a sip, it sort of races out of the gates like a thoroughbred. These wines are no doubt very long-lived, and they are stunners. Paolo is one of these guys who doesn't say much, but you can sense this fiery life force within, and his wines are pretty much the same. Imagine if Dwayne Johnson was a white wine. That's pretty much Insula. I also tried some of Paolo's wine from the nearby island of Graciosa, and Kapow! the tooth-bleaching acidity was just off the charts in a great way. Graciosa wines could probably fuel a Formula One car and win. These wines get their insane acidity because the soil's better on Graciosa, so the yields are higher. So with the higher yields, the grapes don't ripen like they do on Pico. So you end up with zing-zang acidity. And it really got me thinking about the endless potential for sparkling wine on Graciosa. We'll see, maybe one day. Paulo is like a keystone to Pico's current state. He helps shape the rules of the CVR, the wine governing body of the Azores, and he's an all around sort of champion of indigenous varieties. Paulo and I drove south to his winery, Insula, and we sat on a porch right next to one of his vineyards. These walls are such a feature of these Pico vineyards. We talked about wines and winemaking, and in the distance you could see the sun reflecting off the ocean, like glass.
5: Since uh, very young, I helped my my grandfathers and my father to making wine. When I go study, I go to uh, agriculture school, and uh, I come back, start working with uh, viticulture and changing the old vineyards they are uh, with hybrid american hybrids and i i changed to to vinifera to verdalho and barinto and the others Um, and i start making my own wines uh, and i always always going to portugal mainland to learn more about wine making i always have that dream of bottle my my wines
1: here you are
3: <laughs> <laughs>
5: in in the last year or this year, last year in the order, um i I uh, don't use the commercialists just with local so the process is is very easy um, I'm very focused on vineyards, have good grapes always it was my passion is uh, produce grapes so and I know my grapes. I believe in my grapes, so I don't change many things.
1: Pico Volcano is not perfectly centered on the island. And Palo's vineyards are still pretty close to the coast, but they're not exactly on the coast. You kind of have to drive inland a little bit to get to them. Not too far, but the radius from where his vineyards are to the caldera is much shorter than from Criacea And just those few kilometers of proximity to the caldera of the volcano really make a difference in the acidity. Closer to the caldera, you get a little bit higher acid. Farther from the caldera, you get a little bit more ripeness. So, oh, I see, I see. Okay, so this is so close to the volcano top. So this is one of the closest places to the peak. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. So one of the things that I've been sort of figuring out is that like the closer you are to the peak, the higher acid your wines are, typically. Because it's colder. It's a cooler climate. Yeah. And then, like, the farther you are from the peak on the island, your wines are richer, more generous. But it all changes in a year like 19, mm-hmm. when you have the extended, uh, har- the extended period in the vineyard because of the rain.
6: Yeah.
1: Hmm. It's so interesting, like, how even just a couple kilometers from the volcano top can affect acidity so much. Paolo also helped found the Azores Wine Company with Philippe Broca and Antonio Mazanita. So let's head over to Madalena and chat with Antonio about the Azores Wine Company. Antonio is half Azorian, and he's a major force in jump-starting the wine industry on Pico. He'll tell you all about it in a couple of minutes, and you can also get more of his story in his interview with Levy in episode 450. But I want to lead in with some insights into the winemaking at the Azores Wine Company to contextualize what's happening there. So before we head over there, it's time for a quick nerd alert. I can't really tee up why the wines are special at the Azores Wine Company without laying out the science behind them. So we're going to take about three minutes and have a quick nerd moment. When I first tasted these wines, it was the texture that really stood out. And Antonio has taken cues from Riesling production using oxidation methods on the freshly pressed grape juice. In Winespeak, we call the unfermented grape juice the must. To use oxidation methods, it's pretty simple. You simply don't add preservatives to protect the must against oxidation and you let it naturally experience oxidation as it's coming out of the press and as you're working with it imagine you're making apple juice and you slowly press the apple juice and it sort of slowly turns brown in your cup that's kind of what's happening but what exactly is happening to the must during this process let's phone an enologist. i'm going to call dr joy ting and ask her what's up hey joy how's it going good Joy, when we start talking about oxidation, what are we really talking about here on like an atomic level?
7: So when we're thinking about oxidation and reduction, when we talk about those things in wine, we're really borrowing from a vocabulary that comes from chemistry. In chemistry, the idea of oxidation and reduction really has to do with where the electrons are spending most of their time within within a covalent bond. So for example, if we have a sulfur atom that's bonded to two hydrogen atoms, the sulfur atom, the nucleus of the sulfur atom is big, it has a lot of protons in it, the hydrogens only have one proton, they're pretty small, and it turns out in that case, even though they're sharing electrons, those electrons are sort of orbiting around both the sulfur and the hydrogen atoms, that... The electrons are spending more of their time with the sulfur nucleus than they are with the hydrogen nuclei.
1: Joy, can we think of that almost like gravity with like electrons as orbiting bodies?
7: Yeah, it's it it's a we can think of it like gravity. There's a couple of other things that are that are going into uh which atoms are more nucleophilic or which ones are gonna hog the electrons more often. But it is somewhat like gravity in that sense. I used to think about it like um like sharing something with your sibling, like there's always one sibling who shares a little bit less equally than the other sibling. So that's how I used to think about it when I would when I was teaching my high school students is you know you have enjoys talking <laughs> about you <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so we we all there's just lots of ways of thinking about sort of how we do that, but unequal sharing is really what. It, but anyway, so electrons are negative they're negatively charged and so if the electrons hang out more with one atom than the other they have more electrons they're more negative so they're reduced so when we think about chemically oxidation and reduction they're paired processes in any given chemical bond one of the atoms is going to be oxidized while the other one is going to be reduced a lot of times, we call it oxidation because oxygen is one of the, one of the biggest electron hogs there, are, there is around. So if oxygen is around, it's going to hog the electrons from everybody else and oxidize everything else that, that is around it. But there's other things that are also oxidizers. Oxygen is acting as the oxidizer. It itself is actually becoming more reduced because the electrons are spending more time with the oxygen.
1: Um, So we're kind of confused over here about must oxidation. Can you let us know what's going on like inside of the grape juice?
7: When you press white grapes, the juice is going to flow out and go into the press pan. When that happens, the oxygen from the air basically will dissolve into that juice as it's being released from the press into the pan. When that's happening, the oxygen will interact with a number of different components in that juice. So anything that oxygen is going to bind to, it's going to go and find and bind to it. And the most prevalent things in there are the things the oxygen's going to find first. So depending on what's in your juice, you might have different effects of oxygen on that juice and on the, the wine that comes from it. So there are some aromatic compounds that when they bind with oxygen, they become less aromatic. But the other thing that's happening, the oxygen will also bind to any of the phenolics that might be in the juice. So in white wines, we have hydroxycynamic acids and we have some sort of smaller phenolics. The ones that that we would really be thinking about though in terms of allowing oxygen would be some of the larger phenolics that would give astringency and sometimes bitterness to the wine. The more pressure that's used during the pressing cycle, the more is being extracted from the skins of the grapes. And it's the skins of the grapes that have more phenolic compounds. When those interact with oxygen, they they'll basically they'll, they'll brown up, so you'll see the juice gets brown. But when that juice gets pumped into the tank and settled, those will actually kind of, some of them will will form precipitates and settle to the bottom of the tank. So when, then when the winemaker goes and, and racks the juice off of the lees, he or she is really leaving behind a lot of those phenolics, and therefore that juice is less likely to brown later because you've taken out browning components. So it's a way of allowing more extraction of other things from the skins, but getting rid of some of the astringency that would be coming along with that.
1: I've noticed that many winemakers who use must oxidation methods seem to also be looking for a reductive elevage. The two processes seem to go hand in hand. It almost seems intuitive to the winemaker that after putting the must through oxidation, you want to give it an extra safe reductive elevage, which is easiest to do by aging the wine with the lees or the spent yeast cells. Now, I do want to acknowledge that the word reduction is complicated. It means different things in different scenarios to different people, and there are different kinds of reduction. In this particular segment, I'm referring to the reductive environment created by aging wine with the lees for long periods of time. Joy, from what I understand, this is because the yeast are starving for oxygen, and they eat it all up, creating a fairly oxygen-free environment. Is this what's going on during reductive lees elevage?
7: Well... Not really. Okay. <laughs> um, School me. So, so the yeast themselves, they are hungry for oxygen. So when the yeast are active during fermentation, they very quickly consume all of the oxygen in the environment. And the yeast themselves actually need oxygen to be to have healthy cell membranes to be able to finish a fermentation and handle the difficult environment at the end of fermentation. So high alcohol, low nutrient, that sort of thing. But when you're talking about long, long aging on the lees, the yeast aren't really active anymore. They're either not doing anything or they're dead. So they're not consuming the oxygen in a metabolic sense anymore. They're not using that oxygen to make energy or to make cell components or anything like that. Probably what's happening with yeast elevage is that the components of the yeast cell bodies are all still in there. So even though the yeast are dead, you've left all of the the yeast cell bodies in there. The carcasses. The carcasses, (laughs) yes. (laughs) And, And they're slowly breaking down over time. But there's many different components in the yeast cell bodies themselves that will bind oxygen. As soon as the oxygen is bound to the yeast cell bodies, it's no longer circulating around and interacting with aroma compounds or phenolic compounds or feeding spoilage, uh, spoilage characters that might be in the, in the wine as well. So one of the reasons we like to use um, long aging on the lees would be just to, to bring down that oxygen environment to prevent spoilage and to prevent further oxidation of the wine that's in there.
1: So just to paraphrase the, what I think I'm getting from you, is what you're saying is that during a passive oxidation of the must, we're using oxygen to bond to phenolics and drop those compounds out of the must. Then in the elevage, we're using leaves to bond to oxygen and drop that out of the wine.
7: Yes, that would be a good way to think about it.
1: This larger idea of oxidative must treatment, followed by a period of reductive elevage, it's a concept I've noticed reverberate around the wine world for the last decade. Then, almost intuitively, as I mentioned before, winemakers who see oxidation in their musts, they take a mental about face, and in the next phase they almost instinctively aim for a reductive elevage to balance the oxidation the wine has just been through. This combination, when applied on high acid and high sugar grape varieties like Riesling, Petit Bansang, Arintodos, it tends to make a big difference in the fruit presentation, the aromatic complexity, and it enhances the perception of density and acidity. It also appears to increase ageability. We see this similar approach used often for Riesling in the Finger Lakes by, for example, Nancy Ireland at Redtail Ridge, Ben Jordan has applied this strategy to Petit Mensang at Early Mountain in Virginia, and I'm sure there's countless additional examples of oxidative must plus reductive elevage. Drop them in the comments if something else comes to mind. We would love to check out your examples. Now, it may sound complex, but must oxidation and lees aging are pretty simple and kind of ancient concepts. They're common sense must and wine adjustment methods that can require very little or even no intervention. You simply let the must oxidize, and then you leave it with the leaves during its élevage. Pretty simple. And interestingly to my palate, when you taste wines made this way, though they have been exposed to oxidation in must form and reduction in wine form, the paradox is that you rarely taste hints of either of these things. You rarely taste hints of oxidation or reduction. It's almost like it creates a perfect balance where the two concepts neutralize each other, And what you end up with is an ever-unfolding wine with layers and layers of dense texture. This approach is what Antonio is doing at the Azores Wine Company. But what's different here is that this is intentionally being applied to the middle pressing. Antonio splits the pressings into roughly three parts, with the first free run making one cuvee, the middle pressing sees that extended elevage on the lees, And the third is usually reserved for fortified wines. It reminds me so much of like a distiller's mindset where they pull the prized heart off the still and then they treat the heads and the tails differently. But what is actually happening during a pressing and how are the beginning, middle and end cuts of the juice pressings different from one another? The first juice, usually called the free run, tends to have the lowest pH or the highest acidity and is usually favored. The middle and late pressings, the pH goes up and the wine becomes less stable. So compare Antonio's approach at Azores Wine Company to so many other wine regions where it's the free run that's prized because of the low pH. But here you definitely get more flavor extraction from the skin in the middle pressing. And specifically at this winery, to my palate perspective, it really seems like the middle pressings hit some magical zone, which is enhanced with the reductive lees aging. In our conversations, Antonio mentioned a couple of times that on Madeira, the end-press fraction is highly prized for its flavor— But in most wine regions, it's despised for its gnarly pH, its tannins, and its semi-oxidative notes. So it almost takes someone with an Atlantic Island mindset, who is savvy with fortification, who has a bit of a deeper interest in the flavors of the later press fractions, it takes someone looking through this lens to flip the standard paradigm on its head and to place a higher value on the middle and late pressings. He also intentionally uses these special oblong elevage vessels, to increase the lees contact and that really turns up the volume on that reductive elevage. This deft approach to winemaking is both historical and technical. This approach is also a bit interesting because it seems so simple and commonsensical, but it also seems kind of complicated the way it all comes together, kind of like most things on Pico Island. And there's another thing going on with these wines, and that's off-the-charts potassium levels. This is more of a terroir thing that you taste than anything that has to do with the winemaking, but it certainly influences the flavor. And when you taste these wines, especially the middle-pressing cuvées that are denoted as surly, it's like another world. It's like taking the red pill in the matrix. It's like if the sacral chakra itself became embodied in wine form, and then somewhere on the mid-palate just kind of blasted off into like a slow-motion supernova, forever overriding and recasting your white wine experiences in some completely new galaxy. Except for Demorelle Alicote. Okay, now that you know why these wines are extra special, let's hear about how it all started with a few dozen vines of almost extinct Durantej Pico, And if you remember from earlier... Sorantez do Pico is the grape variety that's like a mandarin-orange saline laser beam.
8: Well, I'm half Azorian, half Alentejan. We say a lot, if you're, if you're born in Lisbon, you're from nowhere. So meaning you're, you're not from someplace. You're, you're, and my father is from Azores, my mother is from Alentejo. And I always felt, although I feel very comfortable in the capital, I always felt that my roots were somewhere else. By 2000, I was already in university. I tried to plant a vineyard in São Miguel Island, uh, on a a slope overseeing the ocean, so inaccessible. Uh, You can only go there walking or by boat. So pretty intense stuff with some friends from university. But um, a storm uh, had a... A nice way of uh, saying, come back when you're ready, burned, <laughs> everything that we grafted. Um, so 10 years passed since uh, 2000 and 2010, uh, when I did my first wine in San Miguel. And my paths crossed with the uh, Philippe three years before. Uh, so Philippe, uh, director of the hospitality school of uh, Conta Delgada, uh, invited me to go and do food and wine pairing was food and wine pairing within in in a festival because I I used to work with some restaurants some that I still work today on we actually learned together on food and wine pairing and so I came to do it was a day like meat with everything and uh, fish with everything and so we really got along me flip also his team and I started to come and teach for a class on uh, first introduction to wine and second and it was for chefs not for service it was a uh, getting chefs They wanted uh, to introduce this on uh, on the resume of, of chefs they needed to know how to taste wine and they needed to understand why is it important this this connection between f- wine and f- food and wine and um, so it was really nice for me because also it was uh, not about giving them library of wines, but more like the capacity to put them in certain drawers. Uh, acid wines, more textured wines, more tannic, uh, uh, more alcohol. So kind of putting it in a way that they can ask the front of the room, say, you know, I really need a wine like this. Yeah. And so we did this, and f- and I was uh, really fortunate to spend more time in, in So Miguel. I started to be aware that there was this grape called Terrantejo do Pico, that was almost extinct and uh, there was a, a massal field of recovering this grape in progress so i got in contact with the responsible of this uh, this field and she said maybe there's a reason why this grape almost disappeared is that you can't do great wine with it and i think this was the call to action that i was looking for and i said uh, okay so um what if we do a project here so I, we launched a protocol with the with the local government with the it's the services of agricultural services of San Miguel Island to do a wine out of that grape so we are in 2010 and, uh, and I think this is kind of the seed to uh, what happened after and of course the first wine was a, a huge surprise for me because I started making wine in Alentejo in 2004 so it's my 6th year and I was not into forcing it to be something. I was—I really wanted to test it. Uh, let's just see what it can give. So let's just do clean winemaking. Let's just you know, sort the fruit. Uh, the de-stammer was full of crap inside. So let's just do nice winery hygiene. Uh, let's try to keep a nice cool fermentation. Uh, that Philippe was very handful as well. Because I called him, I need uh, ice. <laughs> and he said, how much ice? I said, I don't know, like a ton? Uh, one hour after... There was a truck uh, <laughs> bringing ice from the fishermen <laughs> to cool our tank, and so uh, so there was no cooling system. So this was uh, how we cooled it for for the first years. And I would say that now we're here in the winery. Some fast forwarding, it starts here. It starts by testing the potential of the island, and uh, and we were lucky because the grapes that resisted here and the the place is so unique that you can taste it. And so this is my my first sensation it, it could have been a product that wasn't noble but when I tasted the first wine I so said like this this is really wow you can uh, some places have more terroir than others and uh, and having more terroir is this sense of uniqueness and uh, so it really we got really well accepted by I would say m- more the community than critics but uh, but uh, uh, also m- more uh, I would say uh, sommelier community and uh, uh, restaurants and uh uh, really got excited about uh, tasting terroir tasting sense of place by 2013 so moving from san miguel to pico i came here to do a workshop on uh, on wine with the with the producers and um really really interesting so it was a converse four-day or three-day conversation on uh, on what was i said and i'm going to take this as, as a consultancy you know like a just let's just see what are the problems you know what's the cost of producing a kilo of fruit what's you know just go through all the steps and um found out an immense history that i didn't i wasn't aware because i'm from so miguel and my mind is that uh, that that glorious past i wasn't I, there was a story about the czars and that's as, as far as i i went and um but to, to know that adding to the people wrote and the back label was actually adding to the source and it was a different grape. <laughs> I didn't know that. so so it's kind of discovering, rediscovering that there are three indigenous grapes, rediscovering that it was not just fortified wines that were made in the past, that there was also steel wines. and that there was still an industry, uh, there was still continuity. And uh, so the coop assured that the wines made it up to here, you know, and and vineyard uh, the, the hybrids assured that people would still do viticulture. So it's kind of each part of the process as a as a very important role for us. And um, and so when we arrived in in thirteen, I actually launched the project with the help of, of Philippe uh, to um, uh, it would be like free consultancy hours to producers. This was the idea, like. Uh, I, th- I, th- I thought this, with very little, we can really change this this region, because most of the problems they are just small and logical faults, or um, just uh, we can really do this. But no one accepted my free consultancy <laughs> hours, <laughs> and uh, so um, so I called I called a Paulo Machado, uh, our partner. Except Paulo except Paul no Paul yeah, yeah 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 except Paul and so I called him and uh, said but do you want to do a wine together so uh, 2013 it was our first vintage doing Arinto dos Açores so testing a different another grape and uh, and that was really uh, of course the de Peak was really important for but it could have stayed as small of what what we were doing in in uh, in, in in San Miguel but um, uh, Arinto dos Açores testing that grape and understanding that it's an amazing grape as well, uh, and there was a lot of it still planted. Uh, made me think, well, that must make sense. You know, it's more resistant than the others. It's higher acid, so it's just that it made uh, made sense. Uh, that it was still going, and gave us the opportunity opportunity to 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 decide. Me, Philippe, and Paul say, well, let's let's really make a, a wine company here, and not not just one wine or another. And um, and so, what was the drive? The drive is I think what has been Philippe's job uh, his entire life and what has been Paulo's job his entire life, that is to promote Azores and taking it to, to another step. And I think when we got the three together with this uh, idea of putting the, the wines of Azores in its rightful place, um, what have we made different? I think uh, uh, respecting the fruit, so really making sure that we, we have nice, healthy fruit uh, and this is not easy when the economy chain doesn't make sense so when we arrived grapes were between 70 cents and 1 euro something that is expensive for, for European standards but but it's very different from being 2.5 to 4 and then it starts making sense to everyone that you, you take all the rot out that you do all the work that you should be doing and just making sure you have nice fruit nice healthy fruit and after not trying not trying to it to be something. So I would say that uh, what do you call it? Like the fish chasing its tail. I think a lot of what was happening before we started making wine in Azores was trying to make Azores wines look like uh, warm region wines. So trying to bend it for to make the market like it. And instead of just saying, you know, it's exactly the opposite. It's just like, let's just uh, accept what it is and let's put it in a bottle and you'll see but the, the public wasn't here, you needed to go, you needed to put those wines in uh, the most demanding markets, in the capitals, and so, and uh, so I think that's our biggest contribution is accepting Azores wines like they are, you know, the, with their potential, with their, uh, you know, you smell a wine from Azores, you have this uh, uh, low tide sometimes reduction of uh, ocean low tide, you know, this, uh, uh, and uh, is it the quality or a fault? And it's, uh, for us, it's for sure uh, quality.
1: But seriously, the best wines from here will leave you thinking, what the f*** just happened? In fact, a few years ago, biologists discovered this piece of our genome that all living creatures share. It's some mitochondrial snippet of DNA-like material smaller than bacteria, They trace this small piece of genetics back to a concept they call Luca, or the last universal common ancestor. Luca, they suspect, was a tiny organism that lived deep in the ocean around thermal vents heated by magma seeping up through the ocean floor. So in a weird way, if you love the wines from Pico, it's sort of like a primal ache deep within your DNA recalling the old days, 4 billion years ago, of pure microorganismal existence where magma meets the ocean. There's also a new generation of winemakers on the island, and it really feels kind of silly to say that since the first generation is literally just a few years into their wine renaissance. And yet, there they are, a second generation, bright-eyed and full of life force and creativity. A lot of them worked or still work at the Azores Wine Company, and you can see their unbridled creativity in the aftershocks of those wines. Let's go meet Katia Laranjo. I caught up with Katia over lunch. She is an Azores Wine Company alum, and she makes wine with her brother's vineyards and her own vineyards under the label Etnam, launched in 2021. Her lineup is an interesting mix of classic approach and avant-garde approach.
2: So in March of this year, I have started to plant my only vineyard, uh, near of the vineyards of my brother. And my passion borns there with my dad when I am young helping in all the vineyards, pick up the grapes, the pruning, and all the, the stuffs at vineyards. So it's very hard uh, viticulture there, because we are very near to the ocean, and sometimes, so we are in Azores, a lot of storms in the winter, in the spring, and they spray a lot of salty water from there. So we don't have courage, uh, it's, it's more hard to work there.
1: So Katya just mentioned this word, Quraysh. It essentially means corral, and it refers to the small boxes of walls around each vine, the sort of inner gridwork. She tells the story of how, in an effort to jumpstart agriculture, several decades ago the government gave incentives for people to rip out their ancient Quraysh, the inner network, and keep the outer vineyard walls. The next step was to fill in the larger box, the larger walls, with imported soil and almost make like a raised plant bed.
2: So it's um, bureaucracy. So the government, before UNESCO World Heritage, giving you money to destroy the Kuhansh and made the, the, the vineyards, like uh, all the countries, for example,
1: to the Midland in Alentejo. For Katia's label, Etnam, she's working with vineyards that have no Quraysh.
2: It's not a traditional vineyard you can found in Pico Island. So it's vineyards without currais uh, because it's a vineyard planting before UNESCO World Heritage. So it's before 2004. It's the year, uh, all the, the, the landscape of vineyards uh,
1: from Pico Island. It's UNESCO. Monica and Vanda also talk about this and how it changed the island. When people cleared their currais, They had nowhere to put the stones so they built these interesting pyramids called Moroiso. So when you can't find archaeological evidence of former vineyards in some places you can sort of safely guess that if you see a Moroiso pyramid the large empty plot next to it was probably once a vineyard site. In theory it might have been a good idea for agriculture but without the Quraysh the plants don't have enough protection from the wind and the sea spray because they're planted literally right next to the ocean. So the plan kind of backfired and it actually made it more difficult to farm some of these plots by the sea. Today, the Creosalvella site and the surrounding areas has been recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and because of this, in certain zones, you can't really rip out Quraysh anymore.
2: Maroesos. Ah, I have. I have a, a Maroisu in my neighbor. In my neighbor, they have a, a huge one. Yeah, it's very beautiful. Very beautiful.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: And I also spent a lovely afternoon with Andre Ribeiro and Ricardo Pinto from Pedras. These dudes are hilarious. It's like watching stand-up comedy. And if you're listening, John Lockwood, Ricardo is your doppelganger. I was literally like, what the what is John Lockwood? Yeah. Ricardo's from the mainland, but he did Harvest on Pico in 2019 and has sort of stuck around ever since. Andre is from the Azores, and he and Ricardo started buying grapes and making their own wines in this cool mountain town on the north coast that kind of has both Tuscan and English seaside vibes to it. The duo bottle ages their wines in, you know, a cave of lava that's in one of Andre's family's vineyards. So yeah, cave aged wine. Where else can you say you have like lava cave aged wine? (laughs) Their wines are crystalline and dense and mineral-driven, and you feel as if they've literally been squeezed from pure stone. Which, if you look at the vineyards, it's kind of pretty accurate. Ricardo and Andre took me on an adventure to the Bay of Canes, this crazy place on the island where there's almost like a rainforest that saunters precariously up the steep side of the volcano. But a pretty recent eruption pushed a fresh black lava stream, a logito, through the vegetation, over the cliff, and created a lava delta, almost like a peninsula, a flat black rock that spilled out into the Atlantic like a giant lily pad. So now I'm in a car driving through a crazy terrain with Andre Ribeiro and Ricardo Pinto. They work for the uh, Azores Wine Company, but they also have their own label. They're part of like this new generation who buys grapes and does their own label called Entrepe Address.
9: Between rocks.
1: Between rocks. And um, if you don't immediately get what that label means, you do once you're in the vineyard (laughs) because you're between rocks from all directions. Oh my God, this is so beautiful. We just turned the corner and there's this insane bay. Um, So we're in a particular lava flow. And this lava that we're on right now is from a volcano that erupted in 1562. Right next to the fresh flow is an old bay with lava rocks that have been wave-tossed for thousands of years, so the beach is made of large round stones. Bamboo-like canes grow there, and it's called Bay of Canes. Okay, so we're actually in the Bay of Canes now, and the Kanyash are all around us. Uh, They're like bamboo plants that kind of rise up out of the volcanic rock. And there's a huge cliff behind us, like a soaring, incredible cliff, just amazing. And you can see all the lava stones kind of billowing down from this cliff. And then in the Bay of Canes, when you look to the left, you see where the lava flow from the 1562 eruption came down and spilled into the sea, creating all this new land. The beach here is covered with these round stones, or these rolled stones that they were talking about, that are like black and gray and pockmarked. They look like mini moons. It's so beautiful. It almost looks landscaped. But it's not. (laughs) It's totally natural. It's unbelievable. And the vineyard on the Legido right next door is called the Bay of Canes Vineyard. Andre and Ricardo farm this wild vineyard on the lava lily pad, and the grapes go into the Azores Wine Company bottlings. The intensity of farming here really sunk in as we toured the site. Wow, look at this. This is nuts. Okay, you got to watch your footing here. You can't just stroll on this beach. Need boots? Yes. Okay. I'm going to make it out. Whew. Now I'm on some crispy lava stones. Okay. I survived. Andre mentioned that you need a new pair of shoes every three months because constantly walking on the crispy edged stones can really rip up your soles. And this was a point not lost on our 1889 travel writer, Edgar Wakeman, who dedicated a large portion of his article on the Azores to a segment called Big Boots, Just the Thing. He wrote then, and it is just as meaningful today. Always be provided with an honestly made pair of boots. Wear them under your tramping trousers. And always have the soles heavily spiked with iron nails. You may not cavort about like a shepherdess, but you will be able to hump along quietly and reach the place you started for— While your companions and guides are limping painfully behind to remove sections of knife-like cinders from between their bleeding toes." I wanted to include what Wakeman wrote about needing boots on pico because the vineyards are like walking on razor blades at times. These are some of the hardest vineyards to farm on planet earth. Andre and Ricardo are deeply involved in the viticulture for the Azores Wine Company. So when you taste these supernova wines at Azores Wine Company, you really think back to the work that these two do in the vineyards. Their own label, Entrepedras, is based on a lot of contracted fruit, and I use the word contract lightly. They explain that contract is usually beers at a cafe, and maybe a handshake. So many magical things in the world happen over beers in a cafe. They also apply some techniques they've learned at the Azores Wine Company to their own wines like the oblong tanks for Lee's aging some of the varieties, because they know. They want to make that good wine. And when you taste the entrepedros wines, you get echoes of the Azores Wine Company wines, but you also get this sense of fresh, unbridled energy, completely beautiful and youthful and soulful. I got a rough estimate that the 11 commercial producers on the island also source fruit from approximately 300 growers. And in a way, because Entrepedras is quite a bit of contracted fruit from many local farmers, plus some family vineyards, it's almost like experiencing the voice of the island, where the fruit of many locals is able to sing together in chorus. Talking with the people who live on Pico, there's this interesting theme that kept coming up. Everyone sort of joked about how they felt like working the vineyards was a chore growing up, but then something happens when they switch and start to get nostalgic about the vineyards and realize how special they are. As we drove along the north coast of Pico, you'll hear the sounds of the road. Andre elaborated on that feeling and process that seems central to the Pico experience.
9: And there's this common feeling that I felt and my father felt, that when you're young, you hate going to the vineyards. Uh, because you you don't want to work at all, you just want to have fun, be with your friends, this and that, uh, but as you get older, you understand the, the passion of the old people for, for the vineyard, there's a certain peace into it, and it's like uh, an art that you start from the beginning to the end, and every year is different, and there's a lot of sorrow sometimes, but there's a lot of happiness at other times, and you you get really engaged into it when you get to a certain age, and once you you are engaged, I think your parents or grandparents they can die peacefully because they know you're gonna you're gonna continue the work that they've done for years and it's almost like in the blood. If Understand them after a few years, but there's always that phase that you hate going to the vineyard. Oh, not this again! <laughs> oh, uh, the harvest is almost here. Oh,
1: and is it sort of like you're obliged to go? Yes, work your harvest for your yeah, family. they uh,
9: you had no chance. You had to work <laughs> to the family. And you back back then, you you didn't even drink wine, but you had to
3: help. <laughs>
1: One afternoon, Paulo Machado and I drove along the coast and we marveled at how close the vineyards were to the ocean. They're grown on these little plateaus, these little cliffs that rise up right from the water's edge.
5: How close the vineyards are from the, the, the ocean. So close.
1: We pulled off and drove closer to the edge of the cliff and came to Lucas Lopez Amaral Zadega. He's 20 years old, and he just came out with his first commercial vintage. And one of his earliest memories is of being in the vineyard. Here's a little excerpt from our chat, translated by Paulo Machado.
5: He says his first memory, uh, it was right here in this vineyard. He remembers maybe around three years old. He comes with uh, his grandfather to pick the grapes and uh, he. It was. It was. With a skizzer he cut the, his uh, hand and he remembers we three years old. He come to pick grapes and cut the, the hand with a, a teaser.
1: I also caught up with Tito Silva. He's in the furniture business, but he also makes wine from family vineyards. Tito has sort of gone all in on Tarantage Chopico. He's planted quite a bit of it. We caught up over dinner and Fortunato Garcia translated our conversation.
5: The
10: thing is, we had a very few plants in the island. So pretty much everybody quit having Terrantejo because it was so fragile. Uh, and, uh, and the truth is, when he was talking to me, and we talked a lot about it, and I was, would always tell him the same story. Trentege is the one that's not going to give you wine every year, but when it gives you wine, it's going to be something out of the box. And so the option was, okay, so let's have trentege and let's start having trentege
1: There's one producer who's a little bit different than all the others. There are a couple who move to Pico and open up an elegant bohemian hotel called Posinio Bay. It has some vineyards, and they make their own wine. And what they do is kind of different than everyone else. The wine they make seems to be mostly for their hotel guests, so you'll be lucky if you ever find some. But these wines are just like these precious jewels. They're made by Jose Eduardo and Luisa Terra. Everything they do is like a labor of love, and this really shows through in the wines. Jose explains how there's this traditional blend of the three grapes on the island, and he puts them together in sort of the ancient recipe of pico. I caught up with Jose and Luisa over lunch at a busy restaurant. You'll hear the bustling sounds of the kitchen in the background, and it kind of epitomizes the tension between chaos and calm that pervades every part of life here, from the weather to the wine.
6: They used to say to make a very good wine you should have seven parts of herinto, two parts of herdelho, and one of tarantejo. There's this mathematical formula for, for a good wine. That's what I'm trying to do. Yes, it's from the ancient ones, before the phylloxera, before all the, before the grapes disappear from here. The first ones, the, the, the wine that they used to export to the czar of Russia and so, they had that formula, seven to one, yes.
1: In the last hundred years or so, a wild forest has overgrown most of the 19th century vineyards. But slowly, the people here are reclaiming the vineyards, cutting down the new trees and revealing the old lava walls trapped in the jungle. You'll see lava rock vineyards with blocks of jungle next to them. And if you peer into the trees, you can see the lava rock labyrinth winding through the jungle, evidence that it was once recently a vineyard too. It's quite a bit of work to clear the overgrowth and reveal the vineyard site underneath. But enough has been cleared away in the last decade or so that you can really get an idea of what it might have looked like when this island was in full wine production mode in the early 1800s. And the job continues. Slowly, the locals are peeling back the jungle to reveal the vineyards of centuries past. But you might be wondering, how did it get this way? And why were most of the vineyards overtaken by forest in the first place? Why did this once famous island of wine become a jungle? Something big happened on Pico to completely change the economy like that. What on earth could occur that is so devastating that it managed to annihilate Pico's wine industry? It's actually a fascinating tale. So let's get into it, after a quick word from our sponsor.
0: <laughs> Sustainability has never been more important, and DM is at the forefront of of environmental responsibility. Having set a new standard in the world of closures, DiEM not only excels in the quality of its technological core closures, but also demonstrates an incredible commitment to caring for the environment. DiEM has taken steps to significantly reduce its carbon footprint, embracing green electricity and renewable energy in its factories. By 2025, they aim to reduce their direct emissions from energy and processing, by 55%. Their sustainable closure solution, Origine by DM, combines natural cork with a binding agent composed of 100% bio-based materials and a beeswax emulsion, a successful testament to Diem's commitment to eco-friendly practices. Diem has pioneered a responsible and long-term vision for cork forests, playing a crucial role in sequestering hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 each year. Planting thousands of new cork trees, DM actively contributes to sustaining our planet's natural resources, and that is something we all benefit from every day. DM doesn't just offer technically advanced cork closures, they also lead in environmental responsibility. Learn more about DM's commitment at dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T, that's D-I-A-M dash closures with an S, forward slash i-d-t-t for more information
1: so why did pico's thriving wine industry go offline in the 1850s and also why was it such a big deal like just how popular was pico wine before the 1850s well for at least two centuries pico island wine was drunk throughout the world In the second half of the 1680s, ship merchants supplied alcohol, including Pico wine, to fishermen in Newfoundland and Maine, and ship merchants used it as a subtle means of workforce control. Wine samples were used to sign up crews, and wine was available for purchase with credit. But when payday came around, it barely covered the wine consumed, and this kept the fishermen who couldn't resist in debt to the merchants. In the same decade, the wine appears in New York tax codes, where it was listed with sweet wines, and it was taxed about the same per gallon as all wine and spirits. But a hundred years later, things seem to have shifted, and in 1789 we see an early mention of this wine in a price list in the Philadelphia Gazette, and it appears to be a dry white wine. In the Gazette, it's one of just five kinds of wines available, and it was the least expensive of the five options. About 30 years later in the 1820s, we start to see dozens and dozens and dozens of mentions of Pico wine for sale in many newspapers throughout the U.S. East Coast. It even shows up for sale in Australia, and in 1843, a Massachusetts paper reported, Most of the wine exported from the Azores is raised from these volcano vineyards of Pico. But not only was Pico wine exported around the world, it frequently masqueraded as other wine regions as well. First, we gotta unpack the truly beguiling relationship with the neighboring island of Fayal. Though the main lava formations came up at different times, Pico and Fayal share the same volcanic base underneath the ocean. Like a stem from the leak in the faults below and underneath the ocean, these two islands are separated by a deep channel, Ico did come up much later than Fayal, though, only about 300,000 years ago. Fayal is about three times as old, and it's complicated because each island has had several new lava flows since they originally emerged. So the soils have super different ages and very different fertilities, which informs their capacities for what crops they can produce. But because they're so close, some old sources call them sister islands, twin islands, and ship captains have written about how they recognize their twin silhouettes when they sail near. I read the account of one sailing commander who was adrift at sea for about a month, but as their provisions were running dangerously low, he reported, I saw land on the port bow. I recognized Fayal to port and Pico to starboard. And his was not the only account of distressed ships in the Atlantic who found refuge at Fayal's Horta port the Twin Island silhouettes must have been a really happy sight for ship-weary eyes. Because of Fial's famous international port and Pico's limited soils, and the historic economic disparity that led from those circumstances, there's a bit of juicy tension between the islands. And I mean like Fial are the Yankees and Pico are the Mets. And it goes deep. So when you're on Pico, when you're in Met Stadium, you don't go talking about the Yankees. Pico and Fayol historically had intertwined economies. Fayol sent cereals to Pico, and Pico sent wines and beef to Fayal. Pico has long been famous for both wine and cattle. The cattle graze inland, and they make the most delicious butter. The Pico cattle are also famous for their beef. And for all the meat-eaters out there, the beef is so silky it almost looks like tuna. And the cheese made from the milk from these cows? is astonishing. It was like some of the most interesting and unique cheese I've ever eaten. Like imagine if butter could have the texture of a marshmallow, kind of spongy, and be like a little bit tangy like yogurt. That's what the Pico cheese is like. It was almost like, if cheese could be candy, it was like addictive. And I'm still dreaming about it. So Pico and Fayal traded with each other by smaller ships, and many of Pico's products left for international ports through Fayal. Because of this, you usually see pico wine show up as fial wine from the 1600s through the early 1800s. But starting in the early 1800s, we see crossover mentions like pico-fial wine as a combo concept. And then in the 1820s, we really start to see the actual word pico more and more on registers. And pico almost became its own brand, even though it was still also called Fayal in many other places. In addition to the file confusion, Pico wine often masqueraded as other kinds of wine. In 1839, Boulard mentioned that Pico wine was often sold falsely as sherry. And in the 1840s, we see wine being sold as Pico Madeira wine. And who knows what that could have been. And I also came across an 1867 recipe for port. And one of the ingredients was 544 gallons of Fial wine. What does it all mean? The main point I'm trying to make is that Pico Island pumped out some serious wine and it was consumed all around the Atlantic Rim and beyond, by the name of Pico or Fayal, and sometimes it was even sold falsely as other wines. We also need to talk about whales, and I don't mean burgundy collectors. Ooh-ha. I'm talking about the huge, swimming, mammal kind of whale—the kind that feeds and breeds around the Azores. For hundreds of years, whales have been important to the economy of the Azores, and the whale and wine economies have often intertwined with one another. You see, in the 17 and 1800s, whale oil was a major source of fuel—a precious commodity. And it's really difficult for us to fully appreciate the impact that whales had at that time because we don't really use whale products today. But to the people of the 1800s, whale oil burned for a long time, it was odorless, it had a high smoke point, and it was highly prized as a machine lubricant during the Industrial Revolution because it didn't make smoke or smells. And to really fathom Azores whaling and how it intertwined in the wine industry, you kind of have to see it in the larger context of the global whaling industry. Azores whaling was deeply connected to New England whaling. And New England whalers hunted a kind of whale called right whales for oil off the coast of Nantucket and beyond. The New England whalers targeted right whales because they had large amounts of oil, and they were easier to hunt because they stayed at the surface longer than a typical whale while feeding, and they stayed close to the shore. Their high blubber content made them float when they were killed, so they were easier to process. And because they were so targeted, today right whales are one of the most endangered species of whales in the world. The New England whalers overhunted right whales, and the decline was noticeable as early as the 1720s. The whaling companies of New England looked to the Azores for sperm whales. Sperm whales also breathed at the service for a long time, and each whale yielded about one ton of oil. In the early 1800s, you start to see references of whaling crews that are made up of both New Englanders and Azorians. And highlighting this connection, the Russell-Purrington artist duo painted a famous whaling panorama in 1848. It's beautiful. And one panel shows New England whaling ships picking up supplies and recruiting crewmen in the Azores. This painting shows a beautiful rendition of Fayal and Pico side by side with sailing ships going between them. The sperm whale economy grew. Candles made from sperm whale tallow, they lasted longer than a typical candle. And these candles were in high demand for lighthouses on both coasts of the Atlantic. This is back when lighthouses were a huge thing. Also prized was a substance called ambergris. It's sort of like a waxy whale colon ooze, literally found in the intestines. Even though it comes out sort of like fecal matter, it's not fecal matter, and it has this amazing aroma that was used in perfumes. It also had a value similar to gold. And sometimes ambergris was even used to flavor drinks like wine, bringing the two industries together in a unique way. Whalebone and also baleen were in high demand in the 1800s for women's fashion. Hoop skirts kept their shape with baleen, and corsets were sculpted with whalebone structure. There were so many industries that spun off of these whale products. But soon, the sperm whales in the Atlantic were overhunted as well. In the New England whaling companies, they moved on to the South Pacific in the early 1800s. They were chasing after another colony of sperm whales that live and hunt in the South Pacific. I found one 1843 article about a whaling shipwreck in the Pacific that listed the surviving crew members and their origins. Most were from New England, but there were three crew from the Azores, including two from Pico Island. This is evidence of a larger trend of Atlantic whalers looking to the South Pacific in the early to mid-1800s. This delivered a blow to Azorian and New England economies as the whalers moved on to another ocean. Crewmen could still join the whalers, but they'd have to head to the Pacific and leave home for many years, working in these sort of brutal ocean conditions. And around this time is the same time when it happened. When Oidium struck Pico. Pico Island vineyards were wiped out from powdery mildew, also called oidium. It's a type of fungus that looks like a plant is covered in handfuls and handfuls of cigar ash. Oidium destroyed the vineyards on Pico, and in 1850, the Pico wine blight was reported around the world. On the infertile soils, Pico Island could produce few other crops outside of wine, especially near the coast. This really hurt the local economy And a huge population exodus occurred in the following years as people sought opportunity elsewhere. Those who stayed pieced together a new economy based on whaling the remaining sperm whales who still fed and bred around the Azores. And at first, pico whaling was semi-successful. There were still some sperm whales in the area, and sperm whale oil was still a hot commodity. But, and this almost seems completely unrelated, in Pennsylvania, someone struck fossil fuel oil in 1859. And by 1865, the economy in the US had transitioned almost completely to fossil fuels, tanking the demand for sperm whale oil. People switched to kerosene lamps because kerosene was cheaper and easier to get in the US. Then in the 1880s, we all know what happened. Nikolai Tesla and Thomas Edison did the whole electricity thing. And soon after, electricity became a mainstream utility. Whale tallow candles became obsolete. So Pico's experiencing decades of continual population loss due to oidium, a volatile whale oil market, and then they suffered a second great blight of phylloxera. And this was sort of a triple whammy to Pico's economy. Boom, boom, boom. There was no longer any incentive to put work into the vineyards, so people stopped farming them. Some vineyards were abandoned by people who emigrated, and there is a lack of property ownership records. So even today, There are forested vineyards all around the island, but nobody knows to whom they belong. It's tricky because you can't go in and farm someone else's land, but it's also tough because as long as they stay forested, the birds come and they eat your grapes next door. I heard several winemakers express their frustration at this whole issue with the birds in the unknown land. In the late 1800s, those who stayed on Pico kept just enough vineyards viable to farm personal wine, and they planted hybrids, also known as multivitis grape varieties, to protect their crop from phylloxera. Whaling continued, but it was a struggle. The whale products were less and less in demand. Whale fuel was replaced by fossil fuel and electricity. Corsets went out of fashion, as Gustav Klimt and Emily flogue championed the smock dress as sort of a 1900s women's fashion liberation movement. And then during World War One, demand for whale oil rose again, because it worked well as a smoke and odor-free lubricant for submarine machinery. By one account, 58,000 whales were killed during World War I, so Britain and allies could have the oil to fuel their war effort. And the Azores found themselves in the crosshairs of a strategic Atlantic location during both World War I and World War II. In fact, the U.S. naval base in the Azores likely swayed Salazar, the prime minister of Portugal at that time, closer to the Allies during World War II. Afterward, Portugal joined the Marshall Plan and was a founding member of NATO. But it didn't get easy when the wars ended. Soon after the wars, disruption and tragedy struck again. For about a year, from fall 1957 to fall 1958, a series of earthquakes and eruptions rocked the central islands. Fayol had a major eruption, to the point where the U.S. enacted the Azorean Refugee Act, welcoming thousands of Azoreans to the New England area. And whaling continued on Pico, though far from its glory days, until the 1980s when it was banned. The last Azores whale was killed in the mid-1980s, and in 1987, this interesting man, Serge Vll co-founded a whale-watching business in the Azores. And these sperm whales are so interesting. They have the largest brains of any creature on Earth. They hunt using echolocation clicks, similar to bats, by snapping a muscle in their nose. And each geographic family of sperm whales has their own unique songs and click rhythms. The echolocation clicks they use are so forceful that it can feel to squid prey that they are being struck The clicks weaken their prey and then the whales speed up to 30 clicks a second right before striking. The sperm whales can go to depths of 1600 meters and they can stay underwater for an hour. They dive deep to hunt these squid. And biologists suspect they may be threatened by sonar and underwater sonic canyons that are used to locate fossil fuel oil in the ocean. Serge was like a conservationist. He was instrumental in taking the existing whaling infrastructure and transforming it into a whale-watching and ecotourism industry. And it was an incredibly successful economic parlay. The whale-watching towers are still there, but today the conservationists watch for whales and let whale-watching boats know where to go to see them. And the whale processing facility is still there, but today it's a museum. Whale-watching is the new engine of the Pico economy, bringing in millions a year in tourism. The winemakers I spoke with on Pico are part of this generation that witnessed the last gasp of the whaling industry. Many are too young to have actually participated in it, but it was deeply a part of their parents' and grandparents' lives. And I got a sense that the island community is eager to move into this new phase where the Pico wine revival moves in parallel with the whale tourism industry. And the people who visit for whale watching can also visit the Adegas, try the wine. The industries can co-support each other. And I also sensed equally from the community this slight apprehension that if tourism increases too much, something really special could be lost. And whales reverberate throughout Pico culture. The folklore, the fairy tales, even the music. So let's head over to another adega, the Cazar Adega, where Fortunato Garcia makes some very unique wines. And for English speakers, Cazar is spelled C-Z-A-R, and it means czar, Just here, the C is pronounced on its own where it isn't in English. Fortunato took over the Cazar Adega from his late father, and when I visited, Fortunato sang this beautiful song that his father had written about whales. You'll hear the call, Balaya, Balaya, the Portuguese word for whale. When Fortunato's dad made wine at the Adega, his goal was to preserve the Pasado wine tradition on the island, as the pico economy was at the tail end of their whaling industry. Today, Fortunato has taken the Pasado-focused Adega to the international market. And you might be wondering... Wait a minute, what is Pesado again? Pico is historically famous for this Apacimento-style wine, made from dried or late-harvest grapes, and here the style is called Pesado. It's similar to pasito.
10: Passado means out raisins, and that's how this particular wine is made. A priest, Padre António Cordeiro, from 1717, that he writes that Pico Passada wine, it's comparable to the Malvasia from Madeira, but only better than this one. When we became world patrimony in 2004, the Vatican sent us a wine list from a banquet from the, the Grand Master of the Maltese Chevaliers, and this is dated from 1797, which appears on the wine list from all over the world, ap- appears two Pico wines, Pico Sic, which... Pico Dry and Pico Amoroso. This is a really Portuguese name, it's like calling a sweetheart wine. Amoroso, it's nothing but the passado wine again. At this time, we are exporting all over the world. We're exporting the passado wine uh, for the popes, the emperors, the kings, and definitely to the Czar's. And we do have registers of the Czar's being the biggest importer of Pasado Pico wine and talking about the biggest, it's like three times more than anybody else's. And actually in second place, well, uh, for 20 years of exportation, let me put the numbers down, we exported about 24 million liters of wine. Although it's most common wine and that's what it's called at the time. And understanding already at the time, there was only four places in the island that were registered as being able to produce pasada wine. The rest of the island would produce common wine, which 60% would be bought by the British. Of course, I'm, I was digging in all of this to find pasada wine because of my tsar. And what I found is of these 24 million liters, only 33,000 were pasada So Understanding already back then, it was a very hard wine to make.
1: And just to contextualize those numbers, about 200 years ago, less than 1% of exports were Passato. It was an elite wine that sold for high prices. If you think about today, Bordeaux usually makes less than 1% of Sauternes, and today Germany produces far less than 1% of beer and Schockenbiernauslesen combined. Those aren't quite apples-to-apples analogies, but you get the idea. So the export volume of Passato wine from Pico, it kind of makes sense. And this means that much of the time, when you see pico or fial wine in historic records, especially at lower prices, it's likely referencing a drier table wine.
10: Out of these 33,000 liters, 24,000 went to the port of St. Pittsburgh. In second place appears U.S. It doesn't say the the port, though. It can only be the big metropolis, Boston or New York at that time, in my opinion. But appears about 6,000 liters bought by U.S. And that's pretty much like a very short version of our Traditional history of our passado wine, uh, which was appearing everywhere in the, in the world. And of course, with the big plagues coming down in 1850 and 1872 with, with the, the Phylloxera, practically everything disappeared. So, only one place in the island replanted our typical grapes which was Criação Velha. And that's the only place I own vineyards because that's the only place in the island that has very old vineyards from our traditional, typical grapes. That part of the island at the time was selling by the liter, And we're talking about 40s and 50s. Now in the 20th century already. And so understanding that selling by the liter, Verdelho is not the best grape. It's Arintus Açores because it's way more productive and it's way more resistant. And so, the owner of our first vineyard that sold that to my dad at the beginning of the 60s, he sold the vineyard to my dad for 5 euros, which is at that time was money, but still it was an incredible deal, with this promise that he had to continue to produce this wine because this wine was about to disappear. did then killed the wine. People were doing it by selling it by the leader. And so, that's what my dad did. Of course, with an incredible low productions, but still stubborn as hell. He kept doing this, and I'm glad he did. And that's why my labels have Cazar from José Eduardo Garcia, my dad's name. It's my tribute to him, because if it wasn't for him, we would not be drinking this nowadays.
1: There are many interesting things about the Cazar wines, but one thing that stood out to me was the lack of perceptible volatile acidity. And scientifically it was there, but it was so integrated that I couldn't really smell it. Now, I must admit to you all that I have a small obsession with Pasito, Apacimento, TBA-style wines. I collect them, I feature them, I seek them out in every wine region, I spend way too much money on them, and I think they are really special. Feeding my obsession, I even made my own one year as an exercise to try and understand it a bit more. So, I came to taste at Fortunato's Adega as kind of a bona fide Pasito wine nerd. Nerd, 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 nerd. Nerd, nerd, Super nerd, duper nerd. Nerd. Now, so often with dried grape wines, or really late harvest wines where the grapes have started to wrinkle, there is volatile acidity on the nose. And often I still enjoy the wines. VA almost comes with the territory of raisin ferments. But to me the best Apostamento wines are the ones where you can't really smell that VA. And that has occurred so rarely. I can really remember the lack of present VA on just a handful of examples, like Rocco de Montegrossi's Vinsanto, Gavala Vinsanto, and some of the Ben Rye vintages from Pantelleria. And with those rare exceptions, most pasito has this sort of haze or veil of V.A. that you need to cut through mentally or adjust to before you can really get to the flavor. And often Botrytis seems to clear a lot of that up, but in non-Botrytis raisin wines, the V.A. is definitely a thing. And I was kind of blown away because the Cazar wines were one of those examples where the VA is so integrated that on the perception, you can't really tell it's there. And another thing about the wines, and again, I kept coming across this on Pico over and over, the texture was so unique. It had all those flavor elements of Pasito wines like almonds, nuts, orange rind, raisin, candied citrus, candied melon, layers and layers of persimmon, apricots. But the texture was more lifted and Venice, very unlike a typical Pasito, which can present thick more like syrup or honey. Fortunato explains that this is because the ambient yeasts from the extreme environment can reach higher alcohol levels. In fact, he reaches about 20% without fortification.
10: I do believe it's our yeasts, our indigenous yeasts. These are the ones that are totally nuts, just like the climate and just probably like our grapes. So again, everything is good together.
1: It makes sense that an extreme climate would have extreme yeasts because I can't imagine a
10: delicate yeast lasting from year to year. Yeah, exactly.
1: So far, we've examined Pico's modern wine story, a 10-year story. But as with many things on Pico, the story is not that simple. Before the whale-watching transition, when Pico was sort of struggling in the late 1940s, adjusting to this post-war era when whale oil was no longer needed, there was one institution that made a huge impact. And there's definitely a decade-long renaissance underway, and there is a second generation of this renaissance taking things into the 2022s. But there's also the Co-op. The Pico Co-op, founded in 1949, it helped bridge a gap between Pico's 1800s wine history and today's breakout period, in a similar way that Cazara Dega carried the Passado torch through this same period. These valuable links between past and future preserved and recast institutional knowledge and vineyard know-how to be reworked later by others and even by the co-op itself. Like Escoffier with the mother sauces, like Kulhark queuing up the breaks, like Cezanne bridging realism and modernism, these links between eras can be incredibly transformative. I chatted with a Pico co-op winemaker, Bernardo Cabral, over Zoom to get his take. Echoing what Andre, Ricardo, Antonio, and Fortunato all mentioned, he described the high-level viticulture that happens on Pico.
11: Well, you have to understand a little bit of the viticulture in Pico. Uh, it's um, a very small size vineyard. Each person has this parcel of vineyard. It is small because you're not allowed it. You, you can't mechanize it. You can't use tractors and everything. Everything is made by hands. And the, the capacity of reaction is very important. So in the a, in a morning if the wind is changing of direction, if uh, there's a storm suddenly coming, you need to react, okay? So it happens a lot of times uh, that uh, I'm with someone and uh, that person says, sorry, I have to go because the wind changed and I have to do something in my vineyard. So the wind the wind is very important. It's responsible to give us, uh, the wind is giving us the, the, the grapes because if we, we wouldn't have the wind, they wouldn't dry, we wouldn't dry the grapes uh, after the raining, which almost every day it rains, we couldn't have great, so the wind is very important and then uh, another thing is how you manage so you put you elevate it with stones, you elevated the bunches uh and the other thing is how do we manage the leaves they are on the top and so you have uh, different approaches uh, my favorite one is the one that you call it like it's an umbrella so they they take the leaves, but they leave they leave one leaf. <laughs> on the top of a bunch uh, and it works as a, as an umbrella so it, when it rains comes it just goes it uh, doesn't go directly to the bunch well of course there's always some but it it, it falls to the to to the other side this is this is uh, i see how precise they do this and only some families they do they they use this technique and normally these guys they have the best grapes so they, erase, they open in the middle, but they leave. That, and, and others they don't understand this, and they open totally. And sometimes, uh, what happens when you open totally? You have more birds to they eat the grapes, and you have botrytis because the birds are hitting the, the, the berries. And uh, and then you have sometimes you can have uh, the sun, or you can have uh, you know anything that can damage the the, the grapes. So, yeah, it's a lot of
1: things. I almost think of Philip Glass when I think of hundreds of people farming tiny home plots and making leaf umbrellas for each great bunch. And listen to what else they do.
11: The wind itself, uh, what they do when the wind changes, when they have these dramatic, speedy winds coming, they break the end of the shoot, um, the a shoot with bunches near the, the main bone. And uh, you have long shoots and uh, at the end they cut it because this part doesn't give you fruit. So they cut it and they, they put a stone uh, on the top of it. So uh, in order, in order the, to get the shoot stuck instead of going with the wind, because if it goes with wind, it can break near the main bone and then you lose the, the, the grapes and you lose a very important uh, shoot. So it's, it's, it's really impressive. It's really, it's, you can't believe this is true. Uh, uh, but then you go there and you realize it's true.
1: <laughs> Could you imagine weighing down the many arms of each grapevine with rocks to keep each shoot from whipping around in the wind? How long do you think it would take you to prep a Pico Island vineyard for high winds by attending to each shoot? Any guesses on how long it takes? Well, in much less time than whatever that amount of time is, I'll be right back. Because I promised you soup, and the soup is coming after this break.
0: It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in Wine Country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, Partners with an S, -S 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 dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand.
1: Our soup has been simmering this whole time. The soup tradition on Pico is called Sopa do Espirito Santo, or Holy Spirit Soup. And if it sounds religious, it's because it is. This tradition started during a volcanic eruption. Hundreds of years ago, people didn't know what was going on. They saw the lava and were like, What is this mystery? And everyone agreed that if the Holy Spirit would save them from the mystery, they would commemorate the occasion by feeding the poor and the Holy Spirit soup was born. Monica elaborates on these beginnings.
3: It was a kind of mystery because people were coming from parts of Europe that there was no volcanoes. Mm-hmm. And when people came so. here, they start seeing natural phenomena. They couldn't explain. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what it was. So for them, that was a mystery. So that's why they called mystery. The with this this uh, historical uh, eruptions, we call it historical because there was people living here when it happened. So they call it mystery. It was also a mystery from God, why was that happening? Why? So and then mystery of seeing plants growing on the rocks. It was also a mystery. The word mystery associated with this type of situation means all, all of this. <laughs> and yep. this eruption started, and then people start claiming to uh, God, mm-hmm. to and the Holy Spirit, to stop this. And it stopped. And then the next day, it blows here <laughs> again. <laughs> so it was be like, oh, and they came again with the Holy Spirit, stop, stop. So that's why on the 21st of uh, September. September. They have uh, they have here. Uh, they have to accomplish a promise every year, because well, people say in the historical records is that they were coming with uh, the crown of the Holy Spirit, claiming for the volcano yeah. to start, and so the volcano stopped. And they there was someone that said, as long as the world is world, we will come here every every year on the twenty-first of September, and we'll. Distribute bread to Red, everybody. everybody. Oh, that's and, uh, the offerings. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and the wine. Yes, and wine because I think they do the traditional Soupers, so- 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 yeah, so- yeah.
1: yeah, Over time, the Holy Spirit soup has evolved into something similar to Thanksgiving. Communities can gather any time they choose, and sometimes groups or brotherhoods collaborate for special Holy Spirit soup get-togethers. There are three basic ingredients. Bread, meat, and broth but the specifics really vary from area to area. Philippe Roca from the Azores Wine Company is from São Miguel Island, and he's also a hospitality leader in the Azores. In working with chefs from around all the islands, he's kind of an expert on cuisine variants from place to place. Let's hear what he has to say about the soup.
12: I would say you have two different approaches. Uh, One is uh, the Holy Ghost soups. Uh, They have meat. And usually they they have cow, but they also have pork. Depends, they have a lot of bread also, and uh, you have like a broth with some uh, uh, some some. Uh, aromatic herbs and then you use depending on the the different places where you are Uh, you have other dishes for example that uh, i think they have a lot of history inside which is alcatra from terceira island the alcatra has a lot of spices and that spices were used specifically there in terceira because angra uh, was a very important port where the boats that came from india used to stop so that's why they, uh, they use spices that were probably not available on other, on other islands and that dish uh, with uh, cow uh, meat is very typical from that island and even w- within the island you have different recipes in some parts they use white wine, in some other they use uh, fortified wine and in other ones they use hybrids so it depends on the, on the zones. They, they, they cook differently, that, that, uh, that dish.
1: But these soups are also important for a wine reason. They are always consumed with vino de shiro, or aromatic wine. To give you an idea of the importance of this genre of wine, on my way home, a bunch of people on the plane to Boston had family-made bottles of Vino de Shiro in their checked luggage. And in the customs line, one woman told me how it was the last wine her late brother-in-law had made, and she was bringing home just three bottles to remind her of her family in the Azores. Vino de Shiro is a homemade wine, and each region, like the soup, may have a different wine. But most people make their Vino de Shiro from multi-Vitis grape varieties, or hybrids, and a main variety that you see frequently on Pico is Isabella. Isabella is a wine of the people, and it was a crop that Pico could depend on through the traumas of the last century. In kind of a tone-deaf move, the government prohibited Isabella. Like, imagine if the U.S. federal government outlawed something as central to American life as, like, growing your own tomatoes. And that's how it played. Millions of people would sort of be like, mm, no. <laughs> We're going to continue to grow our own tomatoes. And in the Azores, they shall continue to grow their own Isabella. You might also be thinking, so it seems like y'all pieced together a history of this episode with newspaper clippings, export records, and some old menus. Well, you would be right. Fial and Pico do not have a ton of readily available records. One of the reasons for this was a social uprising that the islanders referred to as the year of the noise. During this year, and despite a ton of digging, I could not pinpoint the exact year. Please leave it in the comments if you know. Several community-set protest fires destroyed a lot of the existing records.
3: We have here a big difficulty of having documentation because uh, Pico was always uh, a place where, well, it was very difficult to live here, and instructed people, never stayed here. I'll say many people didn't know how to read and and to write, and we have lack of documentation. And worse than that, (laughs) some centuries ago, there was like a local revolution, and the locals burned a lot of uh, books and records, and... Mm -hmm. In And also here, okay. in Lajes, also. Yeah.
1: So the history of Pico is pieced together with tiny puzzle pieces, little glimpses of clues and evidence left on various continents. And if you have any clues, please let us know in the comments so we can continue to discover more. There's also a tradition in the Azores of making fortified wines from all sorts of fruits, including grapes. A type of fortified wine called Licoroso has aging minimums and a minimum alcohol requirement of 16%. Some achieve 16% or higher naturally, and some fortify to reach 16%. Some are dry and some are sweeter. There's a broad spectrum of possibilities in this category. Some of them tend to taste more like a typical Pesito wine, like the Cazar Passato we explored earlier. And some of the fortified wines with heavy oak aging have vibes that remind you of more of a whiskey or an exo brandy and there isn't a ton of backstock on pico to explore the history of this traditional style, though some producers are starting to have 10-year versions or more, and it seems to be a point of real excitement for everybody. I spoke with Cristina Cunha from Carcarita, where her uncle, Leonardo da Silva, makes Licoroso. We tried their Baraca 10, and it definitely had these whiskey vibes. And so to certify the wines, for instance, this licorice wine uh, we have to age
4: it for three years. But we've been doing uh, batches with uh, five and eight, and now we did this one with ten. And that's the idea, to try to keep it longer and longer, to try to understand how the wine can actually develop. This is, like we said already, it's the batch from 2008. We actually let it in the
1: oak barrels for ten years. Bernardo also has an extensive licoroso stock at the co-op, and he even mentioned that sometimes he ferments do d'Opico in old licoroso barrels. Don't you just want to try that? But before I left Christina, I couldn't resist asking her about the muda.
4: Yes, and that's one of the interesting things. You can have your first house like in a main road and about two, three kilometers down you have this, the cottage house, the summer house or what we call adega and people actually move from one house to the other. Yeah, that's, it's basically... Um, just to spend the summer the summer months um, usually during April March April it also has a little bit to do with the the, the wine history because people would do that when they had to start doing the maintenance to the vineyards they would move to the some of those houses and they would uh, and all the maintenance to the vineyards and then they would stay for until the harvesting. So you, that's why usually you move back to your first house uh, when the harvesting ends, because it's end of season, it's when the weather changes, of course, the, the hour changes, the days becomes shorter and, and the sea, like you can see, changes a lot too. So then it's time to move back. But moving back, it's like maybe two, three kilometers back. So.
1: It was funny because some people I asked had no idea what the muda was. And I think that's because some areas don't have that tradition because they live pretty close to their adegas. But also, the roads are much better these days. And it doesn't seem to be as difficult as it might have once been to make daily trips to the vineyards during harvest season. So it seems kind of like an old-fashioned thing. And the nice roads are a new thing that has helped to link up the different parts of the island and to create a larger sense of a Pico community identity. In the near recent past, communities were isolated from one another by the terrain, and the easiest way to travel around was actually by boat. Monica illustrates this point with a story about her mom.
3: My mother was born 74 years ago, and she was, my grandmother who was here having problems for the birth of my mother. So they call a doctor from Sohok, that was the main town, and the doctor came by boat to come quicker.
1: I also caught up with Marco Feria from Corral Atlantis. A handful of commercial producers make their wines in the Atlantis winery facility. Marco is from Madalena on Pico, and he had thoughts on Pico's unique products. He, by the way, is a fellow Pico cheese lover.
3: Pico, it's one
10: island. We have nine highlands. It's some. It's nine rocks in the middle of the Atlantic. So you, you, you have, to, have uh, to make a different thing.
1: Nine rocks in the ocean. A great description of the Azores Island group. Well, on at least one of these rocks, some very intriguing wines are being made. And that brings us to the end of our journey on Pico Island. As always, thanks for listening. If you get to Pico, don't forget to wear your big boots under your tramping trousers. And unless otherwise noted, these interviews occurred in late 2021 and they captured the late 2021 story of Pico. Now I observed a very dynamic scene on Pico. And from what I saw, there will probably be a lot of change and many more players in the coming years. I hope you learned something today about this fascinating island in the Atlantic, especially you, dram, And most of all, a special thanks to all the people who shared their stories. In order of appearance, we met Vanda Supa, the director of environmental and climate change at Pico. Monica Silva-Goulart, she's an architectural expert of the Pico Island Vineyards. Paolo Machado at Insula and Azores Wine Company. Dr. Joy Ting, the enologist at the Winemakers Research Exchange. All their experiment results are posted online at winemakersresearchexchange.com. It's an incredible resource. We also heard from Antonio Mazzanita at Azores Wine Company. Antonio also provided a ton of historic and scientific context, and he pointed me to quite a few sources and also did a bunch of translation along the way. So an extra thank you to you, Antonio. We also heard from Katia Laranjo from her new wine label, Etnum, Andre Ribeiro and Ricardo Pinto of Entre Pedras, you guys rock, Jose Eduardo and Luisa Terra at Pocinho Bay, Bernardo Cabral, the Pico co-op winemaker, Fortunato Garcia at Cazar, Tito Silva at Cerca dos Fradish, translated by Fortunato Garcia, Lucas Lopez Amaral, translated by Paulo Machado, and Felipe Roca from the Azores Wine Company. Felipe is an all-around hospitality leader in the Azores, And he was instrumental in connecting me with many of the voices in this episode. So a double thanks to you, Philippe. We also heard from Cristina Cunha from Carcarita and Marco Faria of Corral Atlantis. Obrigada.
0: All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, All that, pod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com
1: Today we've been speaking about vineyards in lava, and I want to take a moment here to note the passing of Andrea Franchetti, the owner of a pioneering winery on another volcano, Mount Etna. Levy interviewed Andrea Franchetti back in 2014 for episode 186 of this program. In this excerpt from their conversation, Andrea spoke about searching out new regions and what that means for winemaking.
6: Uh, I mean, what is a very good wine? A very good wine to a winemaker. It's easy to understand what what it is if you take someone who's grown up in a classic winemaking place, where there's been a bettering of all procedures that goes in a certain direction. That has been that direction has been taken place for the last five centuries, like in Burgundy, say, made in that particular climate with that particular wine coming out of it and that guides you but if you're in a completely brand new place where wine has never been made before what are the what are the criterias that should guide you uh, for direction in your wine making uh, i have never made wine in classic places i have always been gone to new places in places where they had never been planted and made before. So you develop a different talent, which is uh, uh, through exercise you can learn everything, including this, including uh, following the vision that a certain place suggests to you. And, and, and you are suggested uh, a vision by the light and the nights and the days of a place. And staying there, it grows on you. And um, all the lights of the sun and the temperatures of the winds and uh, the humidity or the dryness of the air uh, come into your mind and become something invisible, which is locked in the secret area of your mind. And and that is something that uh, has an effect so that uh, you keep it in mind and uh, it has to be translated in uh, a code, sort of. And, and that code is the way you make your wine.
1: Andrea Franchetti passed away in the early days of December 2021. He was the owner of Passo Pisciaro on Mount Etna and Tenuta di Trinoro in Tuscany. May he rest in peace.